Welcome to the Celtic Way podcast, where we look to bring a fresh vision of spiritual life by nurturing a vibrant, evolving, and sustainable life with God in nature. Celtic spirituality is an ancient tradition of seeing God in everyone and in everything. This week on the show, we have a special guest, Stefan Walliger. Stefan is a contemplative, a musician, composer, and founder of Community of Peace. Well, it's just good to be with everybody today, and I'd like to introduce to you a longtime friend, somebody that has bounced in and out of our lives and has blessed us with each bounce. And uh, so I'd like to introduce to you Stefan Walliger, who now lives around my old stomping grounds of Berkeley, California, somewhere close to the Graduate Theological Union. Is that right, Stefan? That's absolutely right, my brother. Well, you're one of the most colorful people that I have encountered on my path. Share with us a little bit about where you've been and who you are. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is a great honor and a great pleasure. I just want to reach out and hug you because I haven't seen you in so damn long. It's been a long time. So I'm looking forward to the day when we can embrace again. But it's good to be with you in this way. So thank you again. I was born in the inner city of Buffalo, New York, and very quickly became part of the inner city culture, which included a lot of violence and gang life and undesirable kinds of things, of course. Um, But I think it's important to state that up front because right now I find myself sitting in a rather posh monastery in Berkeley, California, uh, called the Incarnation Monastery. I never thought I would live beyond the age of 21, to be honest. The kind of violence that we experienced back then led me to believe that. And so I find myself now in, in a rather strange place. Well into the second half of my life, I'm finding myself in a place where I never imagined possible. Never, ever imagined. And at the same time, uh, that beginning gives me a perspective that I think is very valuable. Um, I tend to look at things from the bottom up rather than top down and I try to see things through the eyes of those who tend not to be able to say what they really want to say in public and so there's that. I lived for about six years in Ireland and during that time I tried to learn as much as I could and to listen as well as I could to the culture, basically, to the lovely people, to the music, to the songs, to the poetry, the dance, the whole bit, and found myself more and more falling in love with that culture. I was drawn there out of this desire to learn about Celtic spirituality initially, but I quickly began to realize that um, I can't really say much about Celtic spirituality as such, but what I can say is something about Irish people and Irish history and Irish culture. If we want to call that Celtic, I'm all for it. I don't think you'd have any argument from Irish people. But I think to be clear, my background most recently and my real interest lies in things Irish. And that's why I'm here working on this dissertation uh, 
the title of which is uh, Howling at the Moon, the Transformative Spirituality of the Irish Lament. So I'm trying to laser focus on one aspect of what we could call Celtic spirituality, in particular the Irish dimension of that, and even more specifically, what I love to call, people ask to say, what are you working on? I say, well, the wild and wondrous wailing of Irish women. That, that immediately gets their attention. You know? So there's nothing boring about that. Um, so for the past five years, since I left Ireland and since I left Colorado with my brother Scott, that's what I've been doing. Spending my days and nights focused on this, this amazing thing called lament and how we might learn from that tradition and how we might bring something of that into the Christian churches so that we can be better. Stefan, you use the word lament, obviously, and that's a word we've been hearing a ton. Uh, I know around faith circles ever since really the beginning of 2020. Could you, for anybody who maybe is struggling with what that even means, could you just dig into that a little bit for us? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so in the Irish tradition, lament was an essential part of the culture, in the ancient culture as well as the modern culture. And lament was basically, uh, it's twofold, it's both a ritual, a practice, and also a literary text. So lament as an expression of sorrow, of anger, of horror, of protest, uh, was both written down over the centuries, but originally it started off as a ritual. It's part of the oral tradition, right? So it was this way of unleashing the emotion and ideas of a people. And what's especially important to note in the Irish tradition is that this lament, this cry of suffering, was led by the women of the community, mm-hmm. not the men. It was the women who, what I call the liturgy of lament, that's what they led. Okay. Whereas today, and I'm part of the Catholic Church, it's very seldom we get to experience the leadership, as we all know, the leadership of women. But in the ancient Irish world and up to the modern period, it was the women who held court when it came to the community's experience and expression of sorrow and anger and so on. And that's what they did. That was their job. That men sort of held space is what we might call it today. You know, they gathered round and they supported the women in this leadership that they exercised. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I'm just fascinated, Stefan, because in the circles I've been in and the conversations I've had, I've had this assumption that lament was quiet and introspective. But after listening to you, it's obvious that at least historically in the Irish tradition, that's not even close to true. Yeah, exactly right. It, it is anything but quiet. Mm. Um, lament is, that's why the title of the dissertation is Howling at the Moon. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you a quick story along that line. So early 20th century. So this, this lament led by women lasted before, started before Christ, went through the Christian era, and, and it still is around to some degree. But in the early 20th century, uh, there's a story recorded that um, the local Irish women 
in a particular village were lamenting or what they call keening, keening the dead um, at the graveyard, which is an important place to, to remember that's where you lament. And there they were, this group of Irish women doing what they've done for centuries, howling, and that's the word that's used. They were howling. And along comes their local Catholic priest. And uh, his immediate response is to get off his horse, take his horse whip, and beat them until they were silenced. Okay? Now that's not uncommon in the Irish tradition. That represents the dreadful aspect of censorship, of uh, silencing what was a vocal, a, a embodied lament led by the women. And of course it was a male priest that silenced the voices of women. That's a very important part of the history of our religion. Oh, this is interesting because we're living in a time where lament should be springing from the heart of the Christian churches, right? Even yeah. in the institutional place. We, we're going to need lament if we're going to move forward, seriously. Yeah. Exactly. From what I understand, that was the doorway to the future, you could yes. say. It yeah. was the doorway to, to faith, really. I wish, I wish our Catholic priests ancestors had realized that because they thought they were silencing what was in their mind anti-faith right but in reality mm. that deep heartfelt expression was an approach to faith was for them the way to trust and transformation rich stuff needed today for sure so you're in Berkeley, you're working on your PhD, and somewhere along this space, you have this, this has been a, probably a desire with you for a long time, but now the seed has been planted and it's starting to grow about this vision, this dream that you, this hope that you have mm -hmm. about the community of, of peace. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading through the document you sent me and your mission statement, I just thought we are such we're such kin folk here. I think we have the same mother somewhere along the line. <laughs> well, I want you to share with us now your hope and your dream about this. This is so exciting. Sure. Yeah, it, it actually started, I would say, about 20 years ago when I first visited. I visited Ireland, Scotland, and then France. And again, for a kid from Buffalo, New York, you know, part of the street gang, who would have thought? that I would ever set foot outside of New York, let alone of the country, you know. But I was working at the time as a music director at a place called Theological College in Washington, D.C. And the rector of the place said to me, you're doing a, a decent job here, here's some money. Why don't you go travel and uh, go to Teze in France and uh, bring us back some of their music. And I thought about it for a split second and said, yes, yes, I'm, I'm happy to, <laughs> to do the mission here, Padre. So away I went, but on the way, visited Iona in Scotland and uh, visited Ireland and uh, then went for my assigned mission uh, to France. Landed in Teze and it was, it was uh, how can I say it, uh, it was a tremendous enlightening kind of experience because I expected a little monastery where 
you know, some old dudes were hanging out and it was kind of calm and sedate. And when I got off the bus in the village, there were 3,000 young people cheering and, and howling and yelling and, you know, doing what young people do, you know, just wonderfully. And um, I thought I was in the wrong place, you know, to be sure. And uh, once <laughs> I was assured that this was the monastery of Teze, you know, I relaxed a bit and settled in. So my experience there was, I would say, without a doubt, transformative, because as I entered into their chanting, their prayer, three times a day, and the young people were present for all of it. So if you can imagine 3,000, literally 3,000 young people sitting together between the ages of 18 and 35, let's say, chanting three times a day, spending time in silence, and then sitting on the hillside in small groups talking about life, their struggles. I felt I was in heaven. So that experience to me moved me to say to myself, there must be something like this in the United States. There has to be. And I searched and searched and searched when I got back, and there really wasn't. I mean, there's lovely monasteries, there's lovely churches and communities, but Teze has something unique. First of all, they're ecumenical, and so they're deeply Protestant and deeply Catholic. And in addition, the, the young people are welcomed there really without regard to financial means. Here in the States, you know, you go to a retreat center and they say, welcome. Here's, here's what it costs for the first night. And you look at it and you go, holy moly, really? Um, and they say, yeah. And then sometimes you can stay, sometimes you can't, you know. Uh, the, the reality is that in most places today, sad to say, retreat centers, even monasteries, it's just not affordable. Teze is different. Teze welcomes you uh, basically what you can afford. That's fine. So since that first visit, I've been back to Teze about 12 times. That pilgrimage over the years to Teze has convinced me that there must be something like Teze in this country, okay? With that deep welcome, with that disregard for financial status. And then of course, you know, the beautiful song prayer. When you enter into that beautiful song prayer, for many, many people, it is transformative. Oh, by the way, there's no preaching. So I know preachers are disappointed about that, but, but there's no preaching. There is teaching, but the teaching is focused around a very simple, uh, I would call it poetic even, presentation, meditative, on a particular text that is nourishing and uplifting. And then the last part of today, which I find inspiring, is its um, commitment to solidarity. And by that I mean uh, solidarity and service to the most vulnerable in society. So there we're talking, you know, not the inner journey, but clearly the outer journey, engaged in social justice issues and engaged with people who are struggling in that way. So all of that sums up for me what is the best about this community of today. And for about 20 years, I've been hoping, praying, and working toward this reflection of this community of Teze. Um, and along the way, of course, you know, the streams of Celtic spirituality and, and even Hindu spirituality have come into my way of thinking about this. So it's kind of a, a lovely mishmash of spiritualities, plural, uh, rooted in a Christian tradition.
the things you hold dear to your heart are the same things we hold dear to our heart as well. So we're kindred spirits for sure. And then the love of nature and the expression of God in nature, as I read your document, is a big part of that as well. It is, it is. And of course, a lot of that does come from a Celtic spirituality. Um, and my one of my favorite uh, Irish philosopher storytellers is John Moriarty. Uh, he has since passed. But John, if you see him, uh, he looks kind of like an old wild sheepdog. Uh, John would often speak about Celtic spirituality. One of the things that he uh, spoke about was the Irish word nert. Basically means the, the power and the presence, the, the flow of God, of the divine, in and through nature. Mm-hmm. And when I got hold of that, I thought, that's exactly what I want to pursue. You know, for Christianity, I think it's essential that we, we read this book, this divine text, in a way that we get up close and personal. So the community of peace, um, along with you know, sharing stories and, and, and texts along the lines of John Moriarty and Irish poetry and so on, will be situated on 270 acres of beautiful, lush, forested land. It's just this rich, nertful, you know, God-filled land that um, you go outside and you just kind of get swept into it. It's one of the things that I think draws us into a deeper relationship with the divine. In the time, some years ago, when I went through my own, I call it agnostic period, um, when I left the Christian church, uh, because I, I couldn't, I think my head exploded basically, and the rest of my body was saying, good, good, let's, let's do that. Um, uh, it, it just became too much of an intellectual thing for me. And, but I did find, I remember I was living at the time in Pittsburgh, actually. I would go out into uh, the grounds of this local seminary, and there were these huge trees, I remember, with these gigantic roots that were visible above the ground. Yeah? Mm. And, and it was just something about it. You know, and I was going through a terrible time. I thought I was losing my faith. And, and I would go out. I walked out into this, this lovely land. And I saw these trees. And, and in a sense, I heard them speak to me. You know, like, lay down, brother. You know, we can hold you. And, and I did. And I remember just lying down among those roots and I'd fall asleep you know and wake up with a terrible ache in my back but oh was it so worth it because I was held by the trees you know the trees in a sense spoke to me the world of nature not as separate but as part of who we are an essential channel in a sense an essential presence even of the divine absolutely yeah, I think our like American Christianity spirituality has become so cerebral that it's and it disconnects with nature, which is maybe part of the issue that we're having. And when you were talking about your head exploding, it reminded me, I don't know if you've ever read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, but I think it's in the first chapter and I'll misquote it. But he said something to the fact that the poet tries to get their head in the clouds and the scientist tries to get the clouds into his head and it's the scientist whose head explodes. Yeah, it has a lot to do with how we relate to our own bodies, doesn't it? It's one of the things I love about Irish Celtic spirituality is that in so much of traditional Christianity in the institutional form, the dominant form, let's call it, it it appears that God comes 
through our thinking. We think about stuff, you know. Theology is what we think about God, you know, not so much what we feel about God or even what we experience about God. But in, a, in an Irish Celtic spirituality, God comes very often from below, not so much from above, from below and also from the body. Right. You know, and, and that has a lot to do with you know, Christian anthropology, doesn't it? Um, where so often we hear in our Christian lives, I just heard it the other day, in fact, you know, somebody speaking about St. Benedict and how Benedict claims you know, that we are worms, that we are lowly, that we are, you know, and, and I understand what Benedict was getting at, and I don't want to argue with Benedict because I love Benedict, but let's face it, throughout the Christian tradition, from Augustine right on through, even St. Paul right on through, there's this, I think, tragic error. You know, call, talk about the fall. I mean, we fell right there when we started talking about the flesh and the body in such a negative sense. Right. Whereas I think a, a Celtic Christian spirituality begins to recover some of the, the goodness and, and the beauty of embodiment of the human body and and even in a place like Taze, which is you know doesn't claim to be in any sense Celtic, the founder of Taze, a dear 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 man, sadly was was murdered uh, in 2005, but he often spoke when I remember when I was there, he would say things that I'd never heard before in Christianity. He would say, for example, the infinite goodness of the human heart. Where do you hear that in mainline yeah. Christianity? You know, mm. and then he spoke about Christ in a way I hadn't heard before either. He said, "Christ is united to every person without exception." Yeah. I thought, "Damn, that's so good." You know, just when, when you hear something, it rings true. Mm. You know, you just want to become a human bell and gong yourself so everybody <laughs> can hear it. You know, so those things are present in Christianity. But I would say they've been minimized and suppressed is the word, yeah. you know, sadly. And, and that's why I cherish a Celtic Christian spirituality, which mm -hmm. attempts to, to recover and renew that, that way yeah. of being. The image of God is our authentic self. Who am I in the wonder? Who am I? darkness who am I in the light thank you for listening to this episode of the Celtic Way podcast for more information on Stefan go to songsofpeace.net if you'd like to support this podcast please subscribe give it an honest rating and a review this is the best way to get the podcast in front of as many people as possible. Visit our website at CelticWay.org and subscribe to our updates. While you're there, please consider becoming a sustainable donor so that the message of Celtic Way can continue to influence the world today. Also, like us on Facebook at Celtic Way Colorado. I am wind upon the sea. I am wind upon the sea.